This morning's Bible reading comes from Psalm 63. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied, as with the richest of foods, with singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you, I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Steve asked me to share this experience, I guess you'd call it, that I had a couple of weeks ago at church. Um, Travis was closing up the service <clears throat> and he had Emily yes. in his arms <laughs> and she was asleep and I sensed that God was saying um, that that's how he feels and sees Parramatta Baptist Church, that he sees us as a church in his arms and that he has us. And thinking through the, the ask, seek, knock thing we're doing at the moment, he, I sensed he was saying that that's how I, he wants us as a church to seek him, to pray consistently but to rest in that and feel a real sense of peace in our prayers, not to strive. But I sensed this morning that he was also saying that he feels each of us individually the same way as he sees the church as a whole, that he has everyone in his arms. And so when you're praying, just maybe bear that in mind, that he sees you as a father and he wants you to trust him that way. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. My name's Steve and uh, I'm up here a little bit earlier than I would normally get up in a service, but there's a reason for that. I'd love at the end of this for actually to have some spaciousness in how we respond to what God may be saying to us this morning. We just felt that resonated with our heart as well, that we just sensed that we don't want people walking away from church each week feeling guilty or I've got to do better, I've got to you know, try harder, which often we can adopt for ourselves, but there's a sense of which God calling us to rest to rest in him, to behold him, but also to be held by him as Trav was holding Emily. It was a beautiful picture, and I think particularly in what I'm going to talk about today, if you go away feeling guilty and with a feeling of, I need to do better, I need to try harder, that's not my voice, that's yours, or it's the enemy's, but it's not mine. I also want to say that these seven sermons, so this is number five of seven, they do build into each other. And if you have missed one, they're just available on our website. You can download them or we can just listen straight off the website because there are things that we talk about that in a sense only make sense in the context of this series around Ask, Seek and Knock. Because what I want to talk about today starts with the foundation that Kathy laid last week about who God is. Drawing from the parable of the prodigal son, or the, more correctly, the parable of the two sons, Jesus paints a picture for us of God as our father, a father who allows us freedom, but a father who never stops loving us and who waits for us to come home, even when we abuse that freedom. 
What I, I need you to understand from the front end of this sermon is that God does not turn his back on us. God does not give up on us. His grace and his forgiveness awaits us. And the invitation is there, as it was for the Son, as it is the same for us. Come home. Come home and live again as my son, as my daughter. And and this is the gospel, in a nutshell, is it not? The good news that we proclaim, that God humbles himself. He comes to us in Jesus Christ. And at the cross, he takes our guilt, he takes our shame upon himself, so that we might be robed in his righteousness. That the ring would be put on our finger, that we would be called his sons and his daughters. And this is all of grace. It is not of our doing. And yet we are not passive. We are not passive observers of this. God does not force his love upon us. He does not force his grace upon us. But it is given to us as he waits for us to turn back to him, to trust him and to trust his goodness. See, there are two truths, as is often the case with the Christian gospel. There are two truths that we need to hold together Firstly, is that God's love for us is unconditional and that his presence never leaves us. Do you believe that to be true, that God's love for us is unconditional? There is nothing that you can do that will cause him to stop loving you. It is unconditional and his presence never leaves us. But we hold that truth with another truth and that is that God asks us to walk with him. He has, from the very beginning of time, sought to walk with his creation, with his people. He asks that we walk with him and walk in step with his spirit. That this grace that we are given is not of our doing and yet we are called to respond to that gift, to accept it, to receive it with faith and with obedience. So when we talk about seek the Father, and I need you to understand this, when we talk about seek the Father, never think that God is hiding. Never get it into your head that God is hiding from you, that somehow God has left you. He's ducked behind a bush or he's walked out the door. He has not left you and he has not given up on you. When the scriptures teach us and tell us to seek the Father, when they tell us to draw near to God, it's talking about our response of faith and obedience to him, of walking with him, of seeking relationship with him, of keeping our eyes fixed on him. And if we need to, it's talking about coming home to him. And that's why this vision that she saw, this this sense that she had is so important for us this morning because this is not about guilt, it's not about anxiety, it's not about striving, but it's about knowing where we belong. We belong in relationship with our Father. We belong in his arms. It's about knowing where we belong. It's about knowing how to walk with him. And if we need to, It's about knowing how to walk home. So allow me to pray. Because, Father, as we talk about this seeking of you, Lord, we just want to start with that acknowledgement that you are present and your love for us is unchanging. We thank you that you are here within us and among us by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you will speak to us out of and through your word. Father, give us the ears to hear your voice today. And the things that we have taken on as truth that are not from you. Father, I pray that they would be challenged and put aside. So, Lord, speak to us this morning. Amen. As I thought about walking in step with the Father, I thought out of my own experience of walking with people, that there are four things that generally cause us to turn away. 
to actually take our eyes off the Father. The first is an attitude of defiance. You understand what I mean by that? An attitude that says, well, I will live my life as I want to. It's my right. I can do what I want. This is the youngest son from the parable last week. In a sense, he said to his father, this is my life, that is my inheritance, I want it. Give it to me, I'm due, and I will make my own way from here. Now, we would generally not say that. Though for some people, defiance manifests itself in a complete walking away from the love of God. It's not that the love doesn't exist, it's just that they turn their back on him and walk away from him. It's this sense of I'm done with him. But for others, the defiance is a little bit more subtle. We hold on to the label of being Christians, but we live as we want to. This is the story of Israel. They call themselves the people of God, and yet they brought into their life the worship of other things, of idols. They brought in the culture around them and still said, oh, we believe in God, but their actions spoke otherwise. And we do the same thing. We say, oh, yes, I'm a Christian, and yet... With an attitude of defiance, we live our life as we want to and we will not tolerate God having any part of that. Or perhaps we say to God, you can have this much, but just remember this is my life and I will do with it as I want. Defiance is a turning away from God. It's it's our taking of our eyes off his face. What I would also observe causes us to turn away is a sense of duty. Now this is the oldest son in the story. He saw his relationship with his father, not as a father-son relationship, but as a master-slave. All these years I have slaved for you, he complained. And can I just say that living out of a sense of duty will dull your faith. If you see yourself as slaving away for God, if you picture him as a harsh and a demanding taskmaster, someone that you need to constantly please and perform for, at some time and in time you will resent him for it. It will dull your faith and it will dull any love that you had for him. And can I say that there is no joy in a relationship with God that is driven by duty. You will take your eyes off him. The third thing I observe that causes us to turn away is a sense of disappointment. Have you ever had that? I think many of us have. The hopes and dreams that we have about what life may look like, what it would look like, our expectations of what God will provide for us and give us. But somewhere along the way, we feel that God has let us down. And we say to God something along the lines of, well, I've done my bit. I've come to church. I've put the money in the plate. But you haven't done yours. There's this sense of disappointment that God has let us down. And we're not sure we can trust him. Trust and a lack of trust will damage any relationship. And this sense of disappointment can work against that. But the last one that I observe, and perhaps this is the most common one I've observed, is what I call drift. Do you understand what I mean by the word drift in the Christian faith? It's not like we intended to walk away from the Father. It's not like we intended to leave home or take our eyes off him. It just happens. And one day we realise we have. And there's this sense of, how did I get here? How did I end up being the person that I am now? How did my faith end up being so shallow and blah? How did I get there? I'm someone who loves swimming at the beach. I love the surf. I used to surf when I was younger and 
wasn't so brittle. And I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a very obedient person, so I am the kind of guy who always swims between the flags. I, I, I do that, so I look for them, and I go out through. I even start off in the middle, just to make sure I'm right in the middle of the flags. Like some of you are nodding, you're like this too, right? Oh, I do the right thing. And I love getting out through the breakers, and I love the stillness, you know, where the sharks are, out beyond the breakers. Uh, it's just a beautiful, restful rest of time and I love the swimming out there and I don't know if you've ever had that but occasionally I'll turn back to shore and I go oh they've taken the flags down and then you realise oh no there they are <laughs> and, and then like oh that's why he's blowing a whistle at me yeah and that's just embarrassing and so I start swimming back but there's this sense of which we drift and life does that to us if we're not mindful if we actually don't keep our eyes on the father we will drift and we end up in a place that we never expected to. The demands and the expectations that our culture has and that just life puts upon us squeezes out our faith. And worship becomes just a Sunday thing. You know, the one hour on Sunday becomes what we call worship. Or perhaps it's not even a weekly thing. It becomes every second Sunday or every third or every fourth. Welcome if this is your one in four. It's good to have you here. <laughs> but, but, but when we think about it, we go, how did I get there? How did my faith, which was so primary and important to my life at one stage, how did it become so secondary? And we can't put our finger on a point in time or anything like that. It's just, it's just that we've drifted. We've taken our eyes off the Father and we've just allowed life to carry me along. And we find ourselves in a place that we never intended to be. We barely think about God, let alone pray, because our mind is so filled with the things we have to do with what's being fed to us on our phones and with all of the information that we receive. Most of it interesting, but when we think about it, completely useless. Uh, for me, I recognise duty as my danger. I have certainly drifted in my life, but I'm a responsible person. You probably got that impression. I, I'm even the guy who goes in the middle of the flag. I'm a responsible person, and if you talk to my wife, she may say that occasionally, occasionally I can step into being overly responsible. Perhaps you're the same. But the impact upon that for me is that I find it easier to work for God than I do to work with him. You understand the difference between those two things? I find it easier to work for him than to with him. And I need to remind myself in the same way that we all need to remind ourselves, who am I? And for me, I'm more of a son than I am a slave, and I need to remember that. But God is so kind to us. God is so kind to us and there are so many ways that he enables us to walk in step with him. There are things that he gives us for us to build into our lives, to give our lives a God-centered rhythm. And these are not tasks to be performed. These are not things to put on a list and tick them off as you do them. I call them graces. These are graces. They are God's gift to us. They are not anxiety or guilt-inducing rules, but they are graces which give us the means by which we can stay near and by which we can draw near to God. And before I talk about just some of them this morning, I want to refer to four parts of our bodies that they transform. So if you're a visual person, I'm hoping this will be the bit you remember. Because these graces transform us. As we seek the Father, they enable us to seek the Father and they transform four parts of our body. Three of them you'll agree with and one of them you may just laugh at me and that's okay, I'm good with it. But let this be the ask, these four parts of your body. Firstly, allow your mind to be renewed. So we start at the top. Allow your mind to be renewed. What I'm talking about here is our thinking, 
our perspective, the narratives that we hold. We all hold a worldview. We all hold understandings of the way the world is, the, the way that God is and the way that he works. But what we need to do is allow our minds to be re- renewed, to be transformed by God. And there are graces that God gives us that will do that if we take hold of them. Let your mind be renewed. Let your heart be centred. Well, the other word I like is stilled. What I'm talking about here is actually having an unmovable core, and Trav spoke about this a few weeks ago. Actually having something solid in our life, the unmovable core, allowing our heart to be centred and still. Because most of us have hearts that go after 15,000 different things on any given day. Most of us uh, have so many desires for so many things, we can never satisfy them. But there's something about having a heart that is centred and still. And again, God has given us graces to bring that about. Mind, heart, the third is our hands. Let your hands be open. I think many of us go through life with closed hands. Closed hands hold on to. Closed hands withhold. Closed hands seek to control. Let your hands be open. Because when your hands are open, you're able to do two things. To give and to receive. You know this. And lastly, let your feet dance. And I'm not going to... Actually, Trav's going to come up and show us how to do that. (laughs) Uh, But let your feet dance. And I think I've just lost the true Baptist among us because we know that dancing is the greatest of all sins, right? But stay with me. There's a sense in which we need to find a joy and an aspect of celebration in our relationship with God because if we don't, it is pure duty and there is no joy and there is no love in that. So we need to let your feet dance. I confessed this to Cathy yesterday. I got to this part of my sermon. I was writing it while the women were doing their thing and I just had this, I just want to put on some worship music and in the quietness and the privacy of my own home, I'm going to do some dancing. So Trav, you would have been impressed. I got the feet moving and I just put on some worship songs. And there was just that reminder for me of there's joy in this. This is not just a sermon to be written. This is not just a task to be performed. I actually want to find a sense of joy in this sermon as I write it and as I preach it. And so I did some dancing in a good Baptist kind of way. So there we go. (laughs) That only makes sense to Baptists. I had somebody who said, oh, you're a Baptist. That means you don't dance. It's like, seriously, how old is that joke? (laughs) We're all good. But some of you have got toes that are itching to dance right now, aren't you? I know it. I know it. I know it's there for you. So can you remember those four things? That as, you, as you're seeking the Father, would you pray in those ways so that your mind would be transformed, that your heart would be centred and still, that your hands would be open and that your feet would do a little jig? If you can remember that, I'm a happy man this day. That's all I need you to remember, okay? I'm just now going to unpack it a little bit further on how to do that. I want to talk about some of the graces that God gives us to do that. There are three absolutely essential graces for us to build into our lives. And you know what they are. They are God's word. They are prayer and they are worship. You cannot live. You cannot thrive. You cannot draw near, stay near, keep your eyes fixed on the Father without those three graces in your life. If you are not engaging in worship, prayer and God's word, you are starving yourself slowly to death. And maybe that sounds a little bit overdramatic, but I don't think it is. I think spiritually you are. There's this beautiful passage 
in Acts chapter 2. Look at what they did. This is just the early church. I'm like, the early church are not the perfect model of what church is. I think they lasted about two weeks before they had their first fight and division and, and all sorts of things, right? So don't idolise the early church. But there are just some beautiful pictures along the way. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In there is God's word, there is prayer, there is worship, and there's also a whole lot more. But God's word, prayer, and worship are absolute essentials. They are not duties, but they are gifts that are given to us to help us draw near and to stay near to God. God's word will shape our thinking. God's word is truth. It will reveal to us who God is and who we are and what he has done for us. God's word challenges our faulty and our false narratives and the perspectives that we hold in this world. And by the word, the spirit will renew our mind. He will reveal to us truth. And by his word, it will also still and centre our heart. The word is not just about our heads. The word impacts every part of who we are and it centres our heart. I want to I do this just one little quick exercise with you and trust me, I'm not going to make you dance or do anything with your feet at the moment, but I want you just to close your eyes and I'm just going to say five words that perhaps many of you know very well. The five words are, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Can you just think about those five words? The Lord is my shepherd. And can you think about each of those five words? I'm going to emphasise just one at a time. The Lord is my shepherd. There is no other. God alone is awesome, majestic and powerful. He alone rules the universe. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. This word Yahweh, the one who was, always is, the one who is who he is, uncreated, indefinable in some ways too. The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. This is not some fanciful dream that I have. It is stated there in Scripture. It is truth to me. The Lord is, not may be, not will be, but the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The good news is, is for all, but it's, it's for me as well. He comes for me. I'm the one who is lost. I'm the one from the hundred who has gone walking away. And the Lord is my shepherd. He knows me. He sees me. And he comes for me. He waits for me. The Lord is my shepherd. And the Lord is my shepherd. 
the one who cares for me, watches over me. He provides for me what I need. He leads me beside still waters. The Lord is my shepherd. You see, there's five simple words. You could spend an hour pondering those five words. The word of God speaks truth, but it also centres us. And if you find yourself praying or thinking and your mind is racing, why not come back to those five words and remind yourself that the Lord is my shepherd? You can keep going, the Lord is my shepherd. If that's what you want to do for the rest of this day, that's fine. Can I just say that prayer and worship are equally vital to the spiritual life. Prayer is, is not a duty, it's a conversation with our Father. It is relational, as is worship. Worship comes from the word worth-ship. It declares God's worth. It encourages our soul. It reminds us of who he is. Psalm 63 is just this beautiful expression of worship as David talks about his desire to sense God's presence, to remember all that God has done for him, this desire to worship him, to express trust and dependence. And the thing I love about it is David wrote that in the desert. He didn't write it in the temple when life was cruising. He wrote it in the desert. And in the desert, how does he put it? Beautifully. In your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. He's in the desert. He is fantasizing about the richest of foods. He's tired of rabbit and goat. But in the desert he worships. And in worship he is satisfied. He is fully satisfied. There is this sense of being home. Allow your mind to be renewed. Let your heart be still and centred. Let your hands be open and let your feet dance. This is about building in rhythms of God's word, prayer and worship to do that. But there are so many more graces. There are so many more ways that God has given us that enable us to draw near, to keep our eyes on him. And I just want to speak about four quickly. And I must confess, they're four that I am passionate about and enjoy greatly. So you're going to have to go with that. The first one is fasting and you go, seriously, you enjoy that? Two months of the year, Kathy and I build this into the rhythm of our year, we fast. It brings clarity to our mind and it brings a focus to our prayer. And the things that we fast from at the time when we would enjoy them is the time that we sit down together and pray. It reminds us, it becomes like another little marker in our day where instead of partaking in whatever we would be doing, whether it's watching something, eating something, we pray. It brings a clarity and a focus to our prayer. I find it brings a clarity and a focus to my mind. And it reminds us of the dependence that we have on God. We live in a culture that tells me that I can have whatever I want, whenever I want it. And that's the reality, isn't it? Whatever you desire at any point of the day, most of us can just go and get it and have it. Fasting actually works against that culture. And it actually reminds me that no, I'm dependent upon God for all that I have. It also works against a very self-indulgent attitude and culture that we live in. Now I just want to say I miss what I fast from. I think that's the whole point. You're actually meant to miss it. If you don't miss it then you're probably fasting for it all year anyway. So what's different? I miss what I fast from but I love those two months. I look forward to them. I do. I get excited by them that we're coming into the month of fasting. If you haven't explored it, uh, there's books. You can probably find something semi-decent on the internet. Who knows? 
explore fasting. Second one I just want to mention is gratitude because we need to practice gratitude. We've done this a few years ago as part of the seasons that we engaged in. Thank God. Like actually begin your prayers, thanking him, praising him for what he's done, for who he is. Uh, It brings joy to our worship, joys to our prayers. But when you practice gratitude, also thank people. Get into the practice of thanking people. It will help you actually thank God as well. Again, gratitude works against our culture. I love being countercultural. We live in a culture of entitlement, that the good things I get, I deserve, because I'm a good person, right? We think that. We don't thank people for what they do for us. You know, thank you teachers who teach your children. Thank the people who look after you in the, our medical places. Thank the people who serve us in our shops. Thank them. You're not entitled to their care. Thank them for doing it. It teaches us to recognise the good things rather than to take them for granted. And in a culture that is slow to say, to say thank you and quick to complain, I think it speaks really loudly when we actually develop that attitude of gratitude. Third thing I just want to touch on is generosity. Did you pick that up from Acts chapter 2? Oh my goodness, they sold stuff. They actually sold stuff to give to other people. We'd never do that, right? Generosity reminds us that all we have is from God. Generosity reminds us that what we hold in our hands is actually we hold in trust for God and for his glory. And it teaches us dependence upon him. It teaches us to hold material things lightly because, hey, they're only for a time and then you're going to give them to your kids and they're going to throw them away, right? That's the way life works. You know that. Generosity in giving teaches us obedience and trust. And again, it is so counter-cultural. The attitude in our world is that I've earned it, it's mine. And the other narrative that is so common is I don't have enough. When I have more, then I'll give some away. But my question is, when will you have enough? You will never have enough because wealth is like that. Both Cathy and I come out of financial backgrounds. Cathy worked for a firm called MLC, which I think means make loads of cash. Uh, I worked for a firm called KPMG, and this one was a little bit harder to think of. It meant something, but I think it was like keep people making gazillions or something like that. I'm not sure. But like we come out of that, so I'm not talking out of ignorance. There is a narrative in our world that says I don't have enough. Australia is consistently in the top two or three wealthiest nations in the world. You will not meet an Australian who says they have enough because the narrative is I don't have enough and I don't have enough to be generous, I don't have enough to give, I'm barely getting by. Seriously, do you know how much those subscriptions cost? We're barely getting by and that's the narrative that money will tell us. When Jesus talked about money, he gave it a name. He gave it a personality. And I think for those of us who work in in areas of money, you understand that, that, that money actually seems to develop this power over people. It creates these mindsets and these understandings over people. Wealth, in a sense, I think, in our culture and perhaps across the world is our greatest idol. And the power of wealth and the power of money lies in what it gives us, what it's used for most of the time. Money is used generally to spend on ourselves or to accumulate. And both of those things become addictive. Both of those things become a pattern of our life which we feel that we need. We need to accumulate. We need to accumulate. We don't have enough. I meet people who cannot spend anywhere near the amount of money. They could live to 300, not earn another cent, and they still they would have to be drawing you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. But they don't have enough. They don't have enough. They're anxious about what they're going to survive on when they retire. They're 75. They're still working. They've only got 7 or $8 million in the bank. How will I survive? What is that? And we kind of chuckle at that. But at our own levels, we think that. We don't have enough. I can't give, I can't be generous because I don't have enough. Understand the power that wealth has over us. It is addictive. 
And a very wise person, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, said there's only one way to break the power that wealth has over you, and that is to give it away. Because wealth is designed to be accumulated or to be spent on ourselves. And when you give it away, you break its power. And can I say that giving is freedom? And at this point, some of you will nod because you know that to be true. Others of you are feeling extraordinarily uncomfortable that I'm even talking about this. Wealth has a power over our lives. It has the potential to have a power over our lives. You want to break it, you give it away. And there is freedom in that. And when you discover that, giving becomes a joy, it becomes a gift, it becomes a blessing. Practice generosity. You're missing out if you're not. And the last thing I want to talk about is simply celebration. Celebrate God's goodness. Celebrate the relationship that you have with him and the relationships with others. Joy is a fruit of the spirit. Do you know that? If you don't have joy, there's something missing in your life. Learn to celebrate. Celebration is a spiritual discipline. I love that. So learn to celebrate. We live in a party culture. Why don't you celebrate instead? Uh, There's this beautiful passage in Philippians. Paul just says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Don't stop celebrating. Don't stop rejoicing in the Lord. I'll say it again. Rejoice, just in case you didn't hear it the first time. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful promise? Then in celebration, something happens to our hearts and our minds. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, what is lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This is not duty. This is joy. There is a joy in receiving the graces that God has given us to draw near and to stay near. This is not duty. This is joy. But can I also say that this is not easy because everything in our world will work against you, finding a Jesus-centred rhythm to your life. Allow your mind to be renewed. Allow your heart to be centred and still. Allow your hands to be open, to give and to receive. And allow your feet to dance. Close your eyes again. And I want you to hold your hands in front of you. And I want you to clench your fists. And I want you to put your hands, palms down, with your fists clenched. And I just want you over the coming minutes to do two things. Firstly, to think about what God would have you release. What is it that you need to let go of? And when you've thought of that, just quietly in your heart, pray that and just open your hands and let that fall from you. And when you've released, I want you to turn your hands open and have them palms up. And I just want you to think about and pray about, Lord, what is it that you would have me receive from you? sit in that exercise in the quietness clenched fist to start with down, release open hands palms up, receive 